welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I am excited to welcome to the studio today a celebrated and multi-award winning filmmaker who has been behind such documentaries as Spine Tingler, The William Castle Story, I Am Divine, and the most recent, Fabulous Alan Carr. Please welcome to the show, Jeffrey Schwarz. Thank you for having me. It's a little chilly in here. It's almost like Dracula's crypt down here. Well, it's heating up. That's what we like. We're going to heat it up with conversation. It's heating up already. I can feel it. (laughs) Well, why don't we kick things off the same way I always do, with the same first question I ask all of my guests, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that any way you want. What's your point of entry? What draws you to the genre? Why horror? Well, I do listen to your podcast, so I was expecting this question. Um, You know, weirdly, I think it started with The Count from Sesame Street. Yeah. You know, before I had any awareness of Dracula or vampires or any any kind of horror actually. It was it was it just came from the strangest place, Sesame Street, and I loved that show. Uh watched it avidly, but then there was something about that character that I was really drawn to and I would draw pictures of him and maybe it was his purple skin. I think it was the bats flying around. It was the world he inhabited and he was so weird and different from I mean there were a lot of weird characters on Sesame Street, but that he hung out with Ernie and Bert but he was just from some other world. And then that was the portal into, well, where did this, who is this character? And then I guess in the 70s, early 70s, um, there was a revival of the Universal monster movies. And there was just a lot of, um, they had become available, I guess, to watch. And there was famous Monsters of Filmland. And so I just started getting fascinated with Bela Lugosi and Dracula. And that was really kind of where it all started. It all started with Universal monster movies when I was a little kid, even before actually seeing them. Because they didn't become available actually until quite some time later. There was a package of them that was that were released to PBS. That's where I first saw them all. Uh, but before that, you know, pre-VHS days, pre-DVD, pre-anything days, uh, I would just scour the pages of uh, Famous Monsters magazine, which mm-hmm. was for uh, my generation and a little bit even before me, this was the magazine that told you it was okay to love monsters. And for whatever reason I was drawn to them, that was a magazine that told me it was okay. And you would see these images, these incredible images of these monsters, the Jack Pierce uh, makeup uh, on them from all the Universal movies. So uh, Dracula, the Frankenstein monster, the Wolfman, the Mummy, all of those I was definitely uh, attracted to, drawn to, fascinated with. They were so outside of my little suburban safe world. And um, I loved them. So I think that was my portal in, the Universal monster movies. And I would buy the TV guide and scour the TV guide, look down every single column to see if and when these movies would be aired. I finally got to saw them, see them, like I said, on PBS. There was a package of them. Every Saturday night they would show them. And it was just such a revelation to finally see those movies. I think it's really interesting that you were initially brought in by imagery because you didn't necessarily have access to the films. Uh, outside of the Universal monster movies, do you recall the first movie uh, within the genre that you really just attached yourself to because you were able to see it and had access to it? I, I'm trying. To, I always try to remember the first movies I remember seeing in a theater. Mm-hmm. The earliest one I can remember seeing is The Little Prince, uh, with you know cameo by Bob Fosse. My grandmother took me to see that. I remember going on the subway. I remember going to Radio City Music Hall to see that movie. But the first monster movie that I remember seeing was Young Frankenstein in a theater. And my dad uh, told me and my brother, this is going to be really scary. So we were, <laughs> you know, we were primed to be scared. Right. And in the first scene of the movie, it actually seems like it could be a scary movie until he tries to pull that thing from the skeleton's hands and it snaps back. And then the audience that I saw it with laughed and I'm like, wait a minute, this is scary and funny. And I remember it really blowing my mind that you could have a, a, a two different tones at the same time. I'm interested in the fact that you watching Sesame Street, for example, are drawn to the count. In a way, Sesame Street is sort of a primer for monsters anyway, because Sesame Street is very open about the fact that with the exception of certain characters like Big Bird, we know is a bird. But Telly is a monster. She's referred to as a monster. Uh, they kind of uh, normalize monsters. And well, I Cookie think Monster. That, yeah, Cookie Monster. Yeah. He is the, the monster of the show. Uh, well, other than Oscar the Grouch. Um, I... I think that's interesting because it, it makes monsters feel safe. And it, and they all were, and, and on that show, it was just okay to be who you were. Right. Even if you were, you know, living in a trash can and <laughs> even if you were obsessed with cookies and had OCD about cookies. And, and The Count, too, you know, I just, I, I, I just, he was hilarious. I loved his songs. I loved his accent. Uh, I started dressing up, uh, I got a Count puppet, and then I started dressing up as 
the count. And I'm not sure who it was that steered me to tell me that there that this is based on another character. But I did start dressing up as Dracula for Halloween. There's pictures of me out there uh, with Vaseline in my hair and uh, a cape and uh, a mustache and and all that stuff. And uh, and Dracula was just like an obsession. I, I have so many pictures that I drew of Dracula. I, I, and later I graduated to drawing weirdly pictures of Adolf Hitler. Uh, but you know, early on, it was pictures of Dracula um, that led to the movies, that led to just be vampires in general. And uh, we can talk about you know all the later the later movies and the later images. I mean, that led to you know Dark Shadows, and that led to Fright Night, and all these other things that still I'm uh, drawn to. I was gonna say, I think friendly vampires are an interesting hallmark of your career, which I want to get to in a minute. But I would like to talk about, uh, because of the nature of the show, um, you discussed, with regard to Sesame Street, of course, how Sesame Street celebrates just being who you are. And then, of course, there's this draw to the imagery of what we see in the pages of famous monsters and sort of this uh, idolatry of otherness. Do you think there is a relation to queerness, to to being drawn to that subject matter? Yeah, I mean, I've thought about this. And Early on, I had no inclination about that that was who I was, but there was something about monsters and that I was the only one who was interested in this stuff right. and that I was discouraged uh, by the culture at large, not necessarily by my parents, although they were definitely concerned that I had sort of what they perceived to be an unhealthy interest in these dark things. Mm -hmm. But Famous Monsters had an editor named Forrest J. Ackerman, and Forrest Ackerman lived in Harwood, California. That was his address in the magazine. And he was this kind of friendly, jovial, older guy who told you it was okay to love this stuff. And he would write editorials about it. And you could write letters to the editor. And, and I got a sense that there were other people around the country and around the world who loved monsters as much as I did. And he was telling me that it was okay. So later, when I came out, I, I started making these connections that being interested in monsters and horror films separated me from my peers. I was really the only one in my high school or junior high or elementary school, all these, these periods of my life, I was really the only one who was as obsessed with this as, as, uh, as I, I didn't know anybody else who was obsessed with it as I was. So that prepped me from being different in some way. Right. Um, I remember in high school, I would wear horror movie t-shirts that I bought from the back of Fangoria magazine. One of them was just literally just splatter. You know, it was just blood. And I was visiting a friend of mine and his older sister looked at my shirt and she said, you think you're going to make friends with that shirt? And there was something about it like, well, of course not. But in the other hand, it was like, well, yeah, I mean, I think this is great because I kind of reveled in being a weirdo and it gave me a little bit of an identity in high school because I was not really, um, uh, I didn't really have a forceful personality right. at that time. I still don't, but at that time, but everyone knew that I loved horror movies. Um, and it was just a given. So you, you found a bit of your identity in these movies, even in ways maybe you didn't realize at the time, but you're drawn to the films. They mean something to you. You base your identity a bit around it. I mean, I think a lot of people who've been on the show and a lot of listeners can identify with i'm wearing a horror movie shirt kind of right now it's a divine shirt but like something that i i know if i would have gotten guff about in high school because i did i was that kid too yeah. um was there a moment that you recall watching these movies and uh i guess for lack of better words as peaches christ would say worshiping these movies that you wanted to take it the step beyond passively participating and actually become a filmmaker do you do you remember that moment that's a really good question. Um, I don't remember the exact moment, but I do uh, I do remember being fascinated with George Romero in particular because he made Night of the Living Dead on the weekends while he had a day job. And he was just this he was just a guy, you know, that made a movie. Right. And this was a time where horror movies that were sort of regional horror movies where there would be one particular filmmaker who was associated so close, closely with one area of the country. So you had, you know, Toby Hooper making Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You had George Romero in Pittsburgh and they're so closely associated with these, these areas. Um, I felt like, wow, that's something that I could do. I remember watching the documentary Document of the Dead mm -hmm. and there was a shot of George Romero sitting at an editing bay. And that was the first time I ever saw an image of what it looks like to put a movie together and edit a movie. And that actually triggered my interest in being an editor as well. Cause George Romero, he wrote the movie, he directed the movie, he figured out how to finance the movie um, and he edited the movie himself too. 
So that's sort of the, 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 the multiple threat or the triple threat, or in his case, quadruple, quintuple threat. That was also very appealing to me. Um, I remember making, I, I wasn't a kid that made a ton of movies as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't have a video camera or anything like that, but I remember getting my hands on um, a Super 8 camera and I made an Evil Dead ripoff called Evil Dwelling, um, <laughs> which I just recently put up on YouTube. Um, and it's, it's uh, me hiking through the woods and then this unseen invisible force starts chasing me. And that was direct ripoff from, from Evil Dead. So Evil Dead was another one, you know, Sam Raimi and these filmmakers who were just a bunch of guys who were getting together to make a movie. And that was really inspiring. Yeah, a bunch of Michigan dudes yeah. who are still doing it. And they're still doing it. Yeah. I love that. Now now in New Zealand. Uh, what, what's it like seeing Evil Dwelling all these years later? I was, uh, I just recently, I hadn't seen it in many, many years. And actually, I hadn't really made that many movies in, in uh, high school. So when I was interviewing to get into film school, I brought that with me, but kind of sheepishly, like I didn't really want to show it because I, I knew it was kind of crappy and I didn't feel like it represented me. But the right. guy who interviewed me, he he knew that and he said, well, we'll just watch it anyway. And he, he actually had a couple of nice things to say about it. But um, I didn't look at it for like 30 years and um, and I, I just transferred it. And it was it was shocking how close it was to Evil Dead. There was the there was the camera hurtling through the woods and um, the invisible force and all that stuff. Um, I just recently gave it to my nephew, who's 17, and I'm asked, I'd asked him to come up with a soundscape for it. He's working on that, too. So maybe we'll have a, um, you know, an anniversary version of uh, Evil Dwelling. Oh, here we go. Digitally remastered for the new millennium. For the new millennium. I did make another film, though. I made a, a slasher movie on video with a, a, a friend's uh, video camera. It's called Deviant, and I played a psychiatrist uh, who uh, was responsible for the care of uh, a psychotic killer named Brian Labosco and Brian Labosco escapes from the Institute, um, the Bayside Institute for the criminally insane or something like that. And, and, uh, some security guards that I've assigned have to go out and, and track him down and, and, um, and catch him. So there's some murder scenes in that. He actually kills me. Um, and it's called deviant. So I have to think about that a lot when you ask, you know, making the connection between gay identity and horror films, like this was way before I had any a tangible connection to gay culture, but the word deviate has st- sort of stuck in my head. Uh, so that, and there's another one that I recently uh, actually edited that thing because uh, it was never edited. It was just a bunch of stuff put together on video. And uh, that's on uh, available on YouTube at this point as well. Was that also a short or is that feature length? That was a short. <clears throat> yeah, that was a short. So you take Evil Dwelling to film school with you to, to sheepishly show it to them. You also made these other these other shorts, uh, and you did get into film school, as as we know. <laughs> I did. Um, but it seems like if I know your history, uh, and and correct me because that's why you're here, uh, you you kind of began to pivot from narrative to documentary once you hit film school. Can you tell me a little bit about that switchover? Yeah, it, originally going into film school, I had fully intended to be a narrative uh, filmmaker. And but the the films that I was making, they all uh, were uh, using. Uh, well, I made my my freshman film was called Rocco Baby Rock, and originally it was a script that I had written for Tales from the Dark Side, and and mm-hmm. actually mailed it to Tales from the Dark Side to see if they wanted to make this as a thing. And it was about a kid who uh, starts hearing. Um, old 50s rock and roll music in his head and he can't get it out of his head and eventually he has to jump in front of a train to get rid of the music. It's just, it doesn't make any sense. But that was my freshman film. But all the scenes were filmed in my, uh, in my neighborhood in Bayside. And I was just more, so much more interested in what, in the locations and the real people that accidentally entered the frame than I was kind of in the story. And then all my subsequent narrative films, they were all using non-actors or they were set in real environments like a white castle in my neighborhood and things like that. Uh, and then... I discovered that Al Lewis from the Munsters had a restaurant in New York on Bleecker Street. It was called Grandpa's. And Al Lewis from the Munsters was this beloved um, character actor who everybody in the world knew as Grandpa. Right. He was the Dracula character. So he had a restaurant, and I started hanging out there just observing and watching the interactions that he was having with the tourists that would come to visit him. An entire tour bus would pull up in front of the restaurant. He would get on the tour bus and everyone would go insane. I mean, I don't think now people know the monsters as much as they did then, but then it was in heavy circulation and and he was doing commercials and there was this nostalgia, 60s nostalgia was happening. 
So I just thought this is something that needed to be captured. So at a certain point, I just pivoted from narrative to documentary. I stayed an extra year at school, uh, partly because I, I really didn't want to leave yet. I wasn't really ready to go in, back into, into the real world. Right. And I wanted to make this film. So I started doing docs and, uh, and uh, asked Al Lewis if I could um, film him. And he, he agreed. So I, started, I did some interviews with him. I, we followed him on a train to this Miller beer promotion where he dressed up as the character, as grandpa, which was really just a tuxedo. Right. Uh, there was no real costume. It was a tuxedo. And he would just go and meet people and, and shake hands. And we made a movie. It was called uh, Al Lewis in the Flesh. That ended up being my, my first uh, sort of, that was my senior thesis film. And it was the first film that I really finished, completed, and screened it publicly. And I felt like, okay, I want to I keep doing films like this that, are about popular culture and our obsession with it and, and how the, the regular people interact with stars. Right. And like I said, from one friendly vampire to another. That's right. He was a friendly vampire. He was lovable and adorable. And Al Lewis was a curmudgeon. You know, he, <laughs> he even though he agreed to do the documentary, I remember we were going to follow him on this trip to Philadelphia where he was doing this corporate Halloween party. And we met we, we met him at the Penn station. He was about to get on the train and he, he was looking at us and he didn't quite seem to know who I was, but he didn't stop me from filming him. We followed him onto the train and we're filming him. And then at one point somebody notices us and asks him, um, who are these guys? And he said, I have no idea. <laughs> so he actually <laughs> didn't remember. So eventually he did and we hung out with him and it was great. And I, I love that really fond memories of that movie. Now from the making of the Al Lewis documentary as your student thesis film and the feature that you first completed, you uh, ended up going, did you, was that when you moved here to, to Los Angeles afterwards? F well, I did that film and then I went to San Francisco briefly and then I went back to New York. It's a long story, but um, I was in a relationship in New York. My, after coming out, I was in my first relationship and I wanted to sort of see that through. So I, went, I was in New York after college. Um, the relationship did not work out and I wanted to have a clean break from New York. And around that time, I had come out. I had read The Cellulite Closet, Vito Russo's The Cellulite mm -hmm. Closet. I was going through every single movie in that book, watching everything, catching up, uh, fully embracing my, I, my new identity or newly discovered identity. And then I read an article in the advocate uh and it was right after soon after Vito passed away and the filmmakers rob epstein and jeffrey friedman were attempting to make a documentary feature version of the book right and they were still fundraising and trying to get it together but that was their intention so i immediately uh sparked the idea of going somehow going to work on that movie and i called their office and the office manager there a guy named Bob, he said, uh, uh, well, why don't you come out here and you can intern? So I did. And I got on a train. I went on a train from New York to San Francisco to be more dramatic and <laughs> then landed in San Francisco and became an intern on the celluloid closet, worked a few days a week, uh, and I was temping. And when I uh, started working on the documentary, they had every single gay movie ever made. You know, so they had all, And they had all of Vito Russo's original interviews that he did on audio for The Cellulite Closet. So I, I got to just put him in my Walkman and walk around San Francisco and listen to Vito interviewing Robert Aldrich or interviewing Tennessee Williams, sitting at a dinner table with Tennessee Williams. And you can hear the meal being eaten and you can hear Tennessee Williams say, pass the sugar substitute to Vito Russo. It was so great. Um, and then um, Rob and Jeffrey ended up getting funding for that film from uh, Sheila Nevins at HBO, who's still there. And they ended up hiring me to work on the film as an apprentice editor. And that was my first job in the movie industry was working on the cellulite closet. And I was there for a year or two working on that film. And from working on the celluloid closet, um, I think a lot of people who know you for your feature documentaries don't necessarily realize that you had a long history of doing special features and behind the scene featurettes for many, many major Hollywood pictures and uh, with your company, Automat. From Celluloid Closet to Automat, what was that journey? From Celluloid Closet to Automat. Well, Celluloid Closet was ultimately completed. And I needed to figure out what my next move was going to be. And I decided to, and I wanted to make my own documentaries. Mm -hmm. And uh, my, my dream project at that time was a documentary about William Castle. 
Uh, I loved him. I, I'd seen all the movies. I'd read his autobiography. I was obsessed with him, and I thought this is going to be. I want this to be my debut. Right. So when I went to, I moved to Los Angeles after Cellular Closet because there was no more film work there, and didn't want to go back to temping. So I moved to Los Angeles with with some encouragement uh, from some good friends that lived there, and had the Al Lewis documentary on my arm as sort of a calling card. Right. And was trying to figure out how to make the William Castle movie. I didn't really know how to do that. I didn't know anybody. I had no connections. I knew that Sony owned all those movies. Mm -hmm. So while I was making a living editing low-budget schlocky movies, I was trying to figure out how to make the William Castle film, and I went to Sony uh, and said, hey, do you want to make this documentary about William Castle? Not really knowing that that's not what studios do. Right. But luckily, I met a guy there who was newly installed as the head of the, I don't know what his title was, but the home video division where DVDs were soon to be debuted and, and marketed. Um, I went to him with the idea of doing a, a, this uh, documentary and he said, that's not really what we do, but he kept me in mind. And uh, when the time came to release the Tingler on DVD, he hired me to produce uh, special features for the Tingler and also Tom Savini's Night of the Living Dead. Oh, wow. And uh, I did those two. Those were my first Sony jobs. They went really well. And then he hired me to do Heavy Metal, I think, was next. And then other jobs came in. And then other studios started calling. New Line called. Uh, it was actually Laurent Bouzereau, who is a very accomplished uh, producer, uh, started off doing Laserdiscs, also DVD extras, and now feature documentaries. He had to turn down Final Destination. And he suggested to New Line that maybe... Uh, that I could do it. And that was my first job with New Line. And I ended up working, uh, doing many projects for New Line. But so many projects started piling on top of me. MGM called and I did Spinal Tap and Silence of the Lambs for MGM. There were so many projects, I just had to start a company right. to keep up with everything. So uh, with a business partner, Laura Nix, we started Automat Pictures. And that was a company that thrived for quite, quite some time doing DVD extras. Do you know off the top of your head how many feature films you did DVD extras for? Oh my gosh. Uh, I don't know how many feature films, but there were it's it's hundreds and hundreds of featurettes, and some of them were two minutes long, and some of them right. were two and a half hours long. They were all over the map. So over, I guess, from maybe 1999 until things peaked in sort of like 2010, 2011. Oh my gosh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of hours of stuff, and that would be documentaries, that would be audio commentaries, deleted scenes, gag reels, all that stuff. And then we started doing electronic press kits, EPKs, where we would go on to the set of new movies, right. not just library titles. And so we were on the set of Hairspray and Sex in the City and Men in Black 2 and like big, big titles. And so this, there was sort of a, a golden age of DVD extras, which you were def we are definitely not in now, but the studios were, were trying to get everybody to sell their VHSs and replace all their movies with DVDs. And their thinking was, we're going to pile on quote unquote added value to the the package so that's what we did and it was basically just line items on the back of a box uh to incite people to buy this stuff the studios mm -hmm. they were not discouraging but they were not they didn't want to they, we were not making art we were not making documentaries we were making added value so right. it was a little frustrating sometimes for me because i was very proud of the work that we all did but not a lot of people saw this stuff right uh it, so spine tingle came about uh, after uh, being assigned by Sony, by Mike Stratford at Sony, multiple William Castle titles. I think we did five or six of them. We did Straight Jacket. We did a doc called Battle Axe, which is a lot of fun. And we did 13 Ghosts and Mr. Sardonicus and The Tingler and um, Homicidal and featurettes for all of them. And But my goal ultimately was to make the feature. And uh, I started shooting interviews on my own of people that could speak to all the films. We filmed John Waters. And it took many years to collect enough material where I felt like it's time to do the feature. And then Sony was kind enough to assign me all the interviews. They, they let me keep all the interviews and use them for my own purposes. And I made my first feature. Uh, it was called Spine Tingler, the William Castle story. And that premiered at AFI just about 10 years ago this, this month. And that uh, journey was running parallel to while you were doing all the special feature work. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I always had it in my mind I wanted to do documentaries and the extra features and the added value was a great way to make a living, uh, stay creative mm -hmm. and uh, do what I love to do, which was make movies about or docs about pop culture. Right. But it was, um, but it was always considered marketing materials. I definitely was able to put my own personality and my own spin on these things. And there's right. some work I did that I'm really still really, really proud of. 
and I hope people continue to see them, not even necessarily on DVD anymore. Now they're just like they show up on YouTube and people are trading them. And that's probably where most of the stuff will end up. Right. Because once the DVD goes out of print, you're not going to they don't take this material and upload it to some you know magical website where you can watch all this added value. Right. Although the the new Criterion Silence of the Lambs is going to have our our documentary that we did back in like 2000 or 2001. Oh, that's super so cool. it's still it's still, you know, it's still out there. Well, before I go full tilt boogie into William Castle because of course we have to talk about him. I have to. Uh I do have to ask uh is there beyond the ones that you directly mentioned in that catalog of hundreds of featurettes that you did is there any uh that stick out in your mind as personal favorites well since this is a, a horror theme show i would stick to the horror ones i mean there's so many but i mean i got to work with john carpenter i got to do a documentary about the fog the making of the fog and we interviewed janet lee before she passed away and adrian barbeau and dean cudney and john carpenter who was grumpy and he's like, well, I got to talk about this movie again. Um, but anybody who knows about him would, would not be surprised to no. hear that, but he was great. And the doc is a lot of fun. It's called um, tales from the mist. And uh, we did uh, with, I worked with Joe Dante on a very uh, in-depth documentary about the howling called unleashing the beast. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, I did a documentary for Warner Brothers, who has the international rights to the first Friday the 13th, and we did a doc uh, called Return to Crystal Lake. Mm -hmm. And that was, as far as I know, it might have been, the, it was it was before that that great uh, longer um, Friday the 13th epic documentary that right. was made later. But it, this was a little bit before that, and as far as I know, this might have been the first time uh, um, Betsy Palmer did an interview about Friday the 13th, and she was hilarious, and she brought cookies to the interview so we were we were served cookie by, <laughs> cookies by mrs Voorhees. so the the horror things really jumped right. out because they were really special and uh, commentaries with roger corman got to sit down with larry cohen to do document uh audio commentaries for some of his films and that was really really a, a huge treat well mrs Voorhees was a cook after all oh yeah she was a friend of the christie's although i uh i love watching that that film to know like what she was actually making those kids because that kitchen looked like it hadn't been used in forever you know it was like some shutdown camp they shot in in a weekend uh but that's amazing that's super cool yeah she with betsy palmer was i mean she she does this movie because she needed to she her car broke down and she needed to buy a new car and it just coincided with her getting the offer to do this movie and she thought well she said it will come and it will go and i'll have my sirocco which is the kind of car <laughs> she wanted and then here she is all these decades later and you know she was not known for horror movies she was no. she was the squeaky clean like katie couric of her day on the today show you know and there she is and it was a, it was a strange casting choice like there's no context for it now but it was bizarre as it was as if you know katie couric or some local version of katie couric ended up uh, in, in a splatter movie well Katie, if you're listening, we have a new job for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, William Castle, let's talk about the great gimmick god that he is, um, but filmmaker as well. And you, while discussing your uh, origins with, with horror, we, we, we talked about Dracula and we talked about famous monsters. Um, but when did you first find yourself drawn to William Castle? Because I know he's someone that you particularly have great interest in. Obviously, you made a film about him. I didn't know his work too well. He had appeared in Famous Monsters, but I was in those magazines, I was much more drawn to uh, the Universal films or the Hammer films. But it wasn't until John Waters turned me on to him, as he turned us on all onto so many things. Mm -hmm. I was, I had read uh, all of John Waters' books even before seeing the movies. I read John Waters' books in high school before seeing Pink Flamingos and Female Trouble and all those films that came later. But in um, in Crackpot, there is an essay about William Castle. And it's called Whatever Happened to Showmanship. And that's when I first learned about really who William Castle was, that he was a dreamer and that he was a contract director who had uh, bigger uh, uh, achievements in mind, that he really right. wanted to be a star director like Alfred Hitchcock. And the way that he did that was to make horror films, but not just to make the films, but to create an experience around the film. Right. His first uh, independent horror film was called Macabre, and he put his own money into this movie. He mortgaged his house. He had to ensure that audiences would show up to see Macabre, which is a, a, a pretty good um, thriller. Uh, but it needed something else. So he came up with the idea of ensuring the audience against death by fright. If you went to the movie and you died of a heart attack or something because you were so, just so scared. Right. So he went to Lloyd's of London, this uh, esteemed insurance company, and actually got 
a insurance policy for the audience. And I always thought that was fake. I always thought that was just a story. But when I did the documentary and worked closely with Bill's daughter, Terry Castle, she had all the original papers and I found the original life insurance policy. So he really did do this. And that was such a sensation. He had nurses parked outside the theater handing out life insurance policies. They would do, you know, test your blood pressure and things like that. And it got so much attention and it got so much press that the movie became a smash sensation. And he followed it up with movie after movie after movie, which had many other crazy and more, even more inventive gimmicks. Do you have a favorite gimmick that he did? Well, it has to be the tingler. My God, the tingler was this, if you haven't seen this movie, I know you've seen it, but if yeah. anyone in your audience hasn't seen this movie, wait until you get to see it with an audience because the gimmick in that movie is called Percepto. And it's complicated, but there's a monster that lives on all of our spines and it's called the tingler. And Vincent Price is in the movie and he discovers this thing. And when you're scared, the tingler that lives on your spine feeds off of your fear and it can grow and it can snap your your spine and kill you, right? So if you're scared, the only way to release your fear is to scream. And that screaming will vanquish the tingler. It really makes very little sense. But <laughs> in the movie, one of these tinglers that Vincent Price has removed from somebody's body gets loose in an actual movie theater. And so the only way that the audience in the movie that you're watching in the movie can protect themselves is to scream for their lives. And Vincent Price is telling them to scream. Everyone starts screaming. But also in your theater where you're sitting watching the movie, you're supposed to scream. And at that very moment, these little electric seat buzzers that, that um, William Castle had installed under the seats go off and basically give the audience, a, they said it was an electric shock. Mm -hmm. It was really just like a vibrating hand buzzer kind of thing. And it went, it made everyone crazy. The audience was just in pandemonium. And I had never... Uh, seen the movie until it was revived by hipsters in New York in the 90s. Uh, Film Forum in New York showed The Tingler and they installed the seat buzzers, Perceptus. So I got to see The Tingler for the first time with an, uh, with an audience of, of hipsters in New York. And when that buzzer went off, it was complete pandemonium in the theater. And they knew what was coming. I mean, right. I mean, the people at the time, I think probably some of them knew, and some people like John Waters and Joe Dante, they said they went to see the movie and they looked to find the seats with the buzzers. They intentionally sat in those seats. And it wasn't in every seat because William Castle was too cheap to put it in every seat. He might have done it like every other row. But just the, 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 the experience of seeing all of the audience just go crazy would just heighten everybody's uh, uh, fear of that they were being attacked by the tingler. So that was also, so that's my personal favorite of the gimmicks. Now, it's your favorite of the gimmicks. Is the tingler your favorite of his films, or do you have a different favorite film? It's not his best movie, but it's my favorite because the plot is so outlandish and ridiculous. I mean, I have a soft spot for, for well, for all of them, but uh, Straight Jacket I love because that's a movie that was made right after whatever had happened to Baby Jane and Joan Crawford was now bankable as a horror movie star. Right. And for, for William Castle, getting her was a major coup because she was an A-list star. He'd never had a star of that caliber before, so he made Straight Jacket which if you've seen uh, uh, Betty and Joan recently, the series, they, they do uh, touch on that, on that film and they recreate the trailer for it shot by shot, which is amazing. But um, yeah, so I love Straight Jacket. Homicidal is pretty great. That was William Castle's Psycho ripoff. Right. And I said he wanted to be Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, after Psycho came out, he, w he made his version of Psycho, which was uh, Homicidal, which is, has some very uh, 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 Psycho-esque moments. And um, I won't give away the ending, but... People haven't seen that. You must see it. And, and there is a major twist ending that would be of interest to the queer audience. Well, speaking of the queer audience, because the subsequent f feature documentaries that you made after William Castle feature subjects like Divine, Tab Hunter, Alan Carr, Vito. And each of them, in their own unique way, uh, are icons of, of the queer community. And though people may not really initially think to make this connection. There is a queerness to William Castle, although a heterosexual man. Yes. Uh, but I think that there is a draw to the queer community, to Castle's pageantry. And was that something that you thought about in choosing him as a subject or not really? You know, I think in retrospect, I look at a lot of the films, not so much Vito, because that stands apart in a way, but right. uh, William Castle... Uh, Jack Wrangler, who made a, was a 70s porn star, I made a film about that was right after Spine Tingler, um, Divine, Tab, and even Alan Carr. These were all people that 
or insecure in some ways right. in their own personal lives. And they felt that they needed to create a bigger than life persona um, around them, create a character basically, and live in public as a character. Right. Which was very different from what they really were. I mean, Divine wasn't Divine when he was home. You know, he was Glenn. He was a sweet, shy, quiet guy. But when he would dress up as Divine and put on the wig and the makeup and the heels, he was ferocious and he was just a monster, right? Jack Wrangler was the same thing. He was a scrawny little kid who grew up in, in Beverly Hills and he couldn't, you know, he he wanted to be, he had this image of being a butch macho man. And so he created a Jack Wrangler character. You know, he went to the gym, he pumped himself up, he started wearing flannel and smoking cigarettes and and just walking, prowling around the screen as this um, paragon of masculinity, which he really wasn't. That wasn't who he was. Right. Even William Castle. I mean, he needed to sell his movie, so that meant he needed to sell himself. So he created this character persona of the cigar-chomping, bigger-than-life, Hollywood movie producer, um, Tab Hunter, you know, he was, he was not what he was projected to be on the screen either. You know, right. he was a, he was a gay guy in the fifties, you know, being sold as a product, being sold as God's gift to women, you know, so the, all these, these people, uh, have that in common. I think, right. I think as gay people, we, we do have to sort of put on our, our armor sometimes. And we do have to, I, we do have to figure out who we're going to be in the world and come up with whatever persona it is that we're going to need to survive. You know, uh, even before we come out, we have to, we have to sort of be, we can't be the person that we're meant to be. So it's right. sort of in reverse, actually. We have to come up with a fake persona before we're actually able to be the real person. That's, that's interesting and something we don't talk a lot about in our community is that there is a performative nature to simply being. And, uh, of course, not everyone gets to take it to the degree that Divine did or gets to be the, the heartthrob that Tab was, or even Alan Carr, you know, he created his own reality with the caftans and the parties and the, you know, the larger than life producer. He's kind of the, the, the gay end of the spectrum of what William Castle envisioned a producer was oh, in yeah. a way. Those two movies are very similar there. And I see a lot of kinship between William Castle and Alan Carr, aside from the, the gay thing, you know, it's just that today it's called branding. I guess. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, now, especially now with social media, everyone feels like they have to have a very carefully curated version of themselves online. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is, this is who I am. This is my persona. This is my character, quote unquote. And sure. it might not be who we are when the, when the computers are turned off. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I know that I'm careful about the branding I do and I'm honest about it because in today's world you have to be like yeah. some of the stuff that I enjoy outside of horror and things is probably like so not interesting to this audience that they don't want to see me tweet about it. Well, I do. I'd like to hear, you were just, you told me you were recently tweeted by uh, enterprise rent-a-car. So they're interested in what you're up to. <laughs> Apparently. Yeah. They, uh, I made a comment about how I wanted to go to the Bigfoot museum and enterprise rent-a-car took it upon themselves to suggest that I should rent a car. Uh, from them. So thank you out there, Enterprise, for looking out for me and my trip to find the Sasquatch. <laughs> I still feel like that falls in the branding. Uh, but back to the matter at hand, what I really love about the subjects of all of your documentary features is that there is that through line of otherness, but also finding oneself. And we could literally take an individual episode and talk about each of them. I could spend an hour talking about Divine. I could spend an hour talking about Tab Hunter or about Alan Carr. So, but I want to take a moment because you said it stands apart and talk a little bit about Vito. Because maybe even more than the people I just mentioned, you know, of course, Divine lives in a cult world. Of course, we know that Tab Hunter is the movie star and Alan Carr produced films that are now cult classics. But Vito, for the purposes of, of my audience was one of the few people who said there is the relationship between cinema and queerness and we can use it as activism too. So tell me about that project. Of course, the celluloid closet was a connection at first, but what, what led you to make that documentary? Well, Vito Russo, for people who don't know, Vito Russo was a gay activist and he was part of the early days of gay liberation uh, right before and after Stonewall. Mm -hmm. So he was in New York. He was part of the uh, one of the early gay liberation groups called Gay Activist Alliance. And the GAA was, was a political group, and they were trying to um, secure rights for gay people in New York City and around the country. And they had a vision, and particularly Vito had a vision of the world, what the world could be if everybody came out. 
Right. And one of the ways that Vito, who was uh, a movie queen and loved movies and loved Judy and loved all that stuff, he figured out a way to create community through movies. A lot of gay people, men and women, wouldn't go to a meeting, a political meeting, but they might go to see The Wizard of Oz. Right. So they had uh, the GAA had a firehouse. It was an old abandoned firehouse that they used as their meeting headquarters. Vito decided to start programming movies. So he programmed classics. He programmed um, Wizard of Oz or Auntie Mame, Holo Dolly, Singing in the Rain, all these 42nd Street, these great movies that would appeal to a gay audience and he would bring in the audience. And for many people, men and women who were at these screenings, this was the first time they get to watch a movie with a gay audience where they would normally, they would be the only gay person or they thought in an audience and they would react differently than the rest of the audience would right. at certain things. When they would watch a film with a gay audience that Vito brought together, everyone was laughing at the same jokes. There was sort of a common language. There was a common, um, I know it's an inherent sensibility that we all had, but we didn't realize we had. And that's a really beautiful thing that he did. And he decided that he was going to try to catalog how we were depicted on film because we were depicted on film in um, some uh, not very uh, pretty ways a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Let's just put it that way. Um, when we were, I mean, there were there was a production code that actually prohibited the depiction of any kind of same-sex affection or gay characters, explicitly gay characters on screen for many, many years. And then when the code was lifted, the images that did start to come in were very negative and very defamatory and, and very scary, a lot of them. So Vito decided he was going to catalog all of that in a book, and it was to be called The Cellulite Closet. And that wasn't like he could go on Google and figure this out or right. even go into the card catalog and look up homosexuality in the movies. He had to go, he had to talk to every film critic that he ever met. He had to talk to every gay person or lesbian person that he ever met talk about like what are the movies you remember he went to the national archives he worked in the museum of modern art so he would literally pull prints off the shelf and look and photograph individual frames of a queer character sort of in in the background or a woman wearing a tweed suit you know that was code (laughs) for lesbians there's even one in dracula actually Uh, in the opening there's a couple of women and one of them is wearing a tweed suit so whenever you see a woman in a tweed suit Probably there's something going on there. And Vito spent about 10 years writing this book. uh, And he actually even made the connection with horror films too. You know, he talked about the Frankenstein monster and then Frankenstein monster sort of being a metaphor for the gay experience. That was the first time that I made a connection uh, between horror movies and the gay experience when I heard Vito talk about it, you know, Uh, also seeing boys in the band. Um, Vito wrote a lot about boys in the band. That was uh, one of the first films with gay content that I remember watching late one night. I was babysitting and usually there were horror movies on late, late at night, but this time it was boys in the band. And that also took place in a dark and stormy night with a bunch of uh, gay men who, uh, under the influence of a lot of liquor became monstrous, monstrous right. to each other, you know? So well, and probably to the audience of that era playing it in the late night spot reserved for horror movies was apt for that social time. Well, and it, it scared me. That movie scared me, you know, like I was really fascinated with it and I had never really seen a movie with like, well, there had never even been a movie with, you know, seven or eight gay guys sort of just talking about their lives. That that had never happened before. Um, but this, this was a vision of gay life that while there was camaraderie and friendship and happiness and joy, there was also a darker side of self-loathing and, and pain there, you know? So anyway, Vito, Vito put all this together in this book. Um, and when, and he became a celebrity, he became a uh, if there was such a thing as a gay celebrity, he was it. Right. And he had a high profile and he even had a, a TV show on public access cable or on a, a public television called Our Time where he would he would interview uh, <laughs> activists, writers, filmmakers. Um, and he was also had talked about the news. It was like the news beat of what was going on in the community. And he did an episode one day. He was talking about this mysterious disease that had entered the community and he you can look at that uh, that episode where he's sounding the alarm and he there were a few people who were sounding the alarm at that time Larry Kramer and Vito among them and uh, he became when the epidemic uh, uh, started to um, affect his his world you know the, the, the ground underneath him just you know completely broke apart he his his um, his partner got sick uh, he himself was diagnosed and he became, he took the activism that he had been perfecting all these years and he channeled all of that into being an AIDS activist. And he was one of the founding members of ACT UP and he became 
really one of the, the, the major activists of that period. And so I made the film Beto really to honor him and to talk about someone that I felt was really being neglected and not a lot of people knew about, especially as time goes on. You know, most people that I talked to had never heard of him before. And so that's why uh, I made that film. And that film ties into the other films really as it's just a story about just being true to yourself. Because Vito never thought there was anything wrong with being gay, even right. though he was raised in a culture where it was literally against the law and from every institution was condemning you, whether it be the law, religion, everywhere you looked, you were, you were defective, you were, you were a broken person, you were, um, you were a criminal. Right. And Vito didn't believe any of that, which was amazing. There's just some people, and he was one of them, that just never believed the messages that he was getting. I felt that, I found that really, really inspiring. Well, it's a beautiful movie. And I think it's so important, uh, especially for people who are looking to film as an escape, to also know that it's, a, it's not just an escape, it's a means to help find each other. And uh, he was so important because he basically proclaimed, it's okay to be you. Yeah. And that's, you know, we see people like Divine who are living as, as themselves and... Uh, and and what a world we, you know that we got because of it. Yeah, be true to yourself is really the the theme to all these films, and and certainly to Vito's life. And I, what you said about um, uh, a film being not just entertainment. I mean, right. it's a way to create community. It's a way to f feel that we're not alone. Right. And uh, I'll never forget the when Vito premiered in L.A. I'm sorry, in um, San Francisco. Excuse me, at Frameline. We showed the film, and the response was amazing. And Vito spent a lot of time at the Castro Theater, and in fact, some of his ashes are in the Castro Theater. Oh, I didn't know that. And there's a special seat in the Castro Theater where that was his favorite seat. So we we corded off that seat with a big rainbow sash, and so that was an empty seat in the theater. And after we showed the movie, there was a, a kid in the audience who was wearing rainbow everything, <laughs> rainbow T-shirt, rainbow hat, rainbow, rainbow, right. rainbow. And he stood up and he said, you know, I'm 17 years old. I just came out. My mother is here with me. She brought me to this movie. And yesterday I had no idea who Vito Russo is. And today I think I have a new hero. Mm. And the audience just went crazy. And it was so, it was just such a wonderful moment for, because for me it really came full circle. And it was, that was why I made the movie, really right. to inspire the next generation. Uh, and I was going to ask you, although I think you've spoken a bit about this within your answers, about how do you pick your subjects? That's a really good question. And people ask me that and I, they just kind of pick me. They're, they're people or events in time or that I'm just obsessed with. And I also feel like they're a portal into a bigger story. You know, Vito, mm -hmm. Vito's life, he's, you know, an inspirational uh, person, but also his story was a way to talk about the gay experience from the pre-Stonewall era of invisibility and fear through gay liberation and the explosion of, of um, acceptance, mm -hmm. at least uh, amongst ourselves, of who we were, uh, the, the epidemic. Uh, all these things are, uh, it's a history lesson channeled through one man's point of view. So uh, I generally make my movies as entertainments, but right. I hope that the audience will come away with it with a greater understanding of, of, uh, of these larger issues. Uh, all the films I could say the same for, that they're all right. touch on larger themes. Well, I think that logically leads to the next question, and it's sort of a double hit. Um, is there someone that you have not yet gotten a chance to make a documentary about that you would like to, and what are you working on next? Uh, there's so many movies. I mean, I'm, I, I feel like I'm here on this planet to make these movies, and as long as I'm given the opportunity to do it, I'm going to keep doing it. Right. So there's so many stories that I would like to tell. I do have sort of dream projects. Um, I'm working on a few now that I've started to talk about, like, um, uh, well, reading uh, In the Cellular Closet about the movie Cruising. Uh, I, that was one of the movies that I caught up on after reading his book, and that was a movie that was filmed in the summer of 1979 in New York City, and it's a very dark uh, murder mystery about a cop mm -hmm. by Al Pacino who goes undercover posing as a gay guy to catch a killer. And that movie was heavily protested at the time that it was made by, right. the, by the community who, this was right after Anita Bryant. This was right after the assassination of Harvey Milk. And there was a lot of rage in the community about right. how we were being treated and how we were being depicted on film also, which is something Vito talked about. Right. So here's this movie coming into the community uh, and it was protested. So the, I'm making a documentary now about that moment in time, about the making of cruising, about the protests, and also about the 
um, the flip side of gay liberation and the joy of that, but also the darkness of that, that there right. was, there was danger to it too. There were, there were bashings, there were murders in New York city at that time. There were body parts washing up on the shore. There was, uh, in, in one story that will be told in the film is about Paul Bateson, who was actually an extra in the exorcist. And when you see the exorcist, you'll see him in the arteriogram scene with Linda Blair. Mm-hmm. That man ended up, um, committing murder killing a, a, a gay man after a pickup. And that was one of the stories that inspired William Friedkin to make Cruising. He saw this man on the cover of The Village Voice and he remembered him from being in The Exorcist. So that's, that's, and that's sort of, um, you, that's an example of using, making of Cruising as a window into these bigger issues. And that's, that's a movie I'm working on now. Excellent, excellent. Anything else? Because I know that it takes you years. How long does it take to make a documentary? From the light bulb moment yeah. to, sitting in the, to sitting in the theater on a premiere? Anywhere from five to seven years, you know? So they usually take, I tell people when they want to make a film, do it. But, you, you know, you have to be in for the long haul because it right. does take, you know, it does take years to do it. And I tend to be OCD about my films, so I, I work on, you know, I have great people working with me, but I also right. am very, very closely involved. I edited my last uh, Tab Hunter Confidential. I co-edited Alan Carr. I'm editing the new ones. So um, they do take they do take years to do. So you really have to be fully committed. And it's also, you asked me, you know, what, how do you choose them? They kind of choose me, you know, right. these are movies that I want to see. I wanted to see a movie about divine. I wanted to see the definitive movie about divine. Yeah. And I didn't think that that was happening. And I felt like I was the right person to make it. I feel like I could do it justice. Right. I am interested, uh, in the fact that, cause I know cruising was protested when it came out. And uh, it also reminds me of when Basic Instinct first came out, and that was heavily protested by the community. But both films, over time, have sort of been embraced by the community. What is it about that turning point that happens where we take these movies that were vilified and become kind of cult favorites? Well, it was you know, during the making of Cruising, it wasn't a done deal that the entire community uh, as a block decided that this was uh, needed to be protested and stopped. Right. A lot of people wanted the movie to be made and that Friedkin had the right to make the movie. Now, and, but people were literally saying this movie will cause gay people to be murdered. This is going to be a how-to. Right. And um, I don't necessarily agree with that. And then, you know, you look at the film and it's, it's an uneven movie, but at the same time, it's filmed in the real bars. It's filmed on the real streets. It's film, the extras in the movie are all gay guys who were, this is how they dress. This is how they look. This is how they interacted. I mean, yes, it's scripted. And then there's definitely some ridiculous things about the movie. Some of the dialogue is ridiculous and mm-hmm. the situations, but there's, um, there's an authenticity to it that can't be denied. And I've been always drawn to it because this is the moment right before the discovery of the virus. And we know now that the virus was, virus was being passed around in the late 70s. In 1979, when this movie was being filmed, the virus is being passed around. So you yeah. look at the film and you look at the people in the movie and you have to wonder how many of these people are still with us. Yeah. Um, actually interviewed um, Frank Hennenlotter about cruising and he compared it to watching a film he saw that was filmed in the Warsaw Ghetto. Wow. And he said, well, called the Dibbuk. And he said, well, watching this film, you have to imagine how many of these people survived the Nazis, you know, and this right. is a sort of similar uh, feeling to cruising. And now you look at it with an audience and it, sometimes it plays as a comedy, you know, because yeah. the, the situations are in it are so ridiculous. There's dialogue like with, I don't know, Al Pacino uh, about to uh, have an encounter in the in, in Central Park with a, with a trick and uh, he pulls his pants down and said, hips or lips, you know, things like that. There's dialogue in that movie. That's just ridiculous. You watch it with an audience and they're just laughing at it, but that was not the feeling in 1979, 1980. I do think it's interesting that Pacino never gets the credit that uh, he maybe deserves as an actor from the LGBT community because he was a very macho presence and uh, kind of like a man's man in in, in the seventies landscape of cinema. But I can't think of another actor who uh, took on gay roles like in cruising and dog day afternoon. Um, so, you know, he was daring to do it when no one else was. So hats off to him. Uh, I, um, just for sure interest and Alan Carr related, uh, because you said cruising sometimes plays, uh, like a comedy. Now I saw cruising about six years ago at a double feature at the Warhol museum in Pittsburgh and they played it with Can't Stop the Music. Oh, that's interesting. It's the weirdest double feature. Well, it's not that weird because they were filming <laughs> in New York City at the same exact time in the summer of 79. And actually, there's a story that I hope is true that some gay activists were saw a film being uh, shot and they marched up to the film to start protesting it. And Nancy Walker 
the director said, hey, we're that other one. You want cruising three blocks down. And she was directing Can't Stop the Music. And Can't Stop the Music and Cruising were both nominated for Golden Raspberry Awards in the first year of the Golden Raspberries in 1980. Did either of them win? Do you know? They didn't win. What did win that year? I think Can't Stop the Music might have won. That's, I'll have to, I should know that. I actually really should know that, right? <laughs> the Razzies. Um, as we wind down, I have to ask, what have you been watching lately that's inspired you? Or what are you into? Like, what's... what's? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so much. I mean, we're really in a place now where there's just too much and you can't possibly watch everything that you want to watch. You know, I, I, try to, I try to see as much as I can, but I'm really focusing on docs. I'm really trying to right. spend my time you know, with intention, watching other people's work and watching docs that really excite me. You know, I just, the other night I watched the Joan Didion doc. I, I, I watched, um, making a murderer. I watched the keepers. I, I mean, I watch a lot of stuff that just, um, it, cause I know how much work goes into making these things and how much passion goes into making these things. So I really want to honor other filmmakers and I want to spend time watching other people's work. If you ask me like, what's the last thing I saw that was great scripted wise. I mean, I just saw called me by your name. I just, that, that was amazing. Vito Russo would be just like jumping for joy over that movie. You know, it's, yeah. it's a beautiful thing. Um, but uh, I just saw the Marsha P. Johnson documentary that David France did. And I love that. I think everyone needs to see that film that touches on a lot of the themes also uh, and Vito's world and Vito knew Marsha P. Johnson, you know, actually Marsha, there's a quick shot of Marsha in, um, in Vito and also Sylvia Rivera is plays a role in Vito because you know, Vito also um, tries to portray the split in the community between gay men, lesbians, and trans community at the time, which weren't called trans at the time. Right. They called themselves transvestites or cross-dressers. So interesting how the language changes. Right. And in fact, in Vito, Vito refers to Sylvia Rivera as he, you know, and people have come up to me and said, why did he, why did Vito call Sylvia he? But well, at that time, Sylvia might've referred to herself as he, and Sylvia was going also by Ray at the time. Sometimes right. she was Ray, sometimes she was Sylvia. It's so interesting how the culture changes, the, um, uh, and the, even the language that we use right. to talk about ourselves changes so much and so quickly too. And the films are helpful because they give us the lens and, and we can watch the evolution. That's so, that's, that's interesting. And it shows another reason they're important. And Marsha B. Johnson, like you turn on Netflix and there's Marsha right. smiling and looking at you. There's Marsha on a billboard and a bus ad, you know, like the fact that this movie was made puts Marsha back into the conversation. And she's somebody that was marginalized, neglected, um, not talked about for so many years. Uh, her death is Mr. Still very mysterious. Mm -hmm. And she made such a major, she lived who she, she was who she wanted to be. You know, right. she lived her truth and she, she's another uh, incredible, um, person in our history that we need to remember. I'm so glad that film was made and there'll be more. Absolutely. I have to ask because you began with the thought that you may one day be a narrative filmmaker and you have moved on in a very prolific, multi-award winning way to be a celebrated documentary filmmaker. But do you ever think that you would make a narrative film? Yeah, I do. I'm developing one now uh, about Gloria Swanson and the creation of the musical version of Sunset Boulevard, which she uh, commissioned in the late 1950s. And mm -hmm. she was working with a couple of young songwriters, Richard Stapley and Dixon Hughes, turned into a love triangle. She fell for one of the guys, very Sunset Boulevard, a lot of parallels to the real story. And so I'm actually working on a documentary about that, but also working now with a very good friend of mine who's writing a screenplay for that. And I, I would like to direct that, but if Stephen Frears would like to direct it, I will happily step aside <laughs> and he will do it. And I guess uh, before we head off into the night, I have to ask this final question because you brought it up earlier and um, I always like to know, you talked about your early fascination with Dracula. Do you have a favorite screen Dracula? That is such a good question. I mean, I would just, without even thinking about it, say Bela Lugosi. You know, he, there was just something, the, the power of the character, he didn't really have to say much. It was, it's so, uh, now it's been made fun of so many times and it's been watered down and so many bad comedians have done Bela Lugosi impressions and now it's Adam Sandler in what those, those cartoon movies, you know? Right. Like I just uh, been hanging out with uh, this a friend of ours, has a little kid, he's five years old. He doesn't know anything about Dracula. His way in is Adam Sandler, is to that, what's that movie called? Transylvania oh, uh, Hotel? Hotel, Hotel Transylvania. Transylvania. That's yeah. his in. Like he knows about all the monsters through that. So I find that really interesting. Like that kid might discover Dracula and Bela Lugosi through watching this Adam Sandler movie. Like that might be his version of The Count. I was going to say, you discovered... Yeah, through a puppet, a yeah. Muppet. I'm Muppet. sorry, Jim. Uh, so who knows? <clears throat> I, I would rather uh, there always be a portal 
back to horror. Uh, that's why I never had a problem, like, when Twilight came out and, like, hardcore horror fans were like, we don't like this, the sparkly vampires. I'm like, look, if one kid reads that book and is like, I dig vampires, and they go and buy an Anne Rice book, or yeah. they go and watch The Lost Boys, then we got another one. It's a portal. <laughs> exactly. It's a portal. I, I haven't seen Hotel Transylvania. I probably won't. But, well, uh, you know, I'm glad that uh, it's keeping the monsters alive. Well, Jeffrey, where can people find you? Jeffrey-Schwarz.com. Somebody else had the JeffreySchwarz.com and he wouldn't give it to me. So that it's monster. Jeffrey Dash. He's a monster. <laughs> um, he's uh, Jeffrey-Schwarz.com. Uh, we have websites for all the movies. If you want to see what's going on with the Alan Carr film, there's a website for that. Uh, AlanCarrMovie.com. They're, they're all, I have like seven websites now. So it is like someone has to figure out a way to put all these things in one place. Yeah. Maybe that's something we can figure out next. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been an amazing conversation, uh, and it's always a delight to see you. And thank you for doing what you do. I love this podcast, and I love that you're keeping all this alive. And that you're, I love listening to your show because it's people from all different generations. And I'm so interested to know, like, the references you make, they're, they're from another time. You know, the, the things that you grew up with are different than the things that I grew up with, but they're all connected, and they all somehow go back to um, the, the, the Bela Lugosi. Yeah, Bella goes. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer rated entertainment.